Well, welcome to Grog Talk, the second campaign. I'm your host, James, and a lot has changed over the last couple of months, and I'm glad to be back. So we're starting off with uh, an interview I had with Lou Pulsifer, Lou of the Necromancer fame back in the day, um, prolific author of strategy and uh, gaming advice and tactics for over 40, almost close to 50 years. I spoke to him at GrogCon 23 at the last day and um, really had a good time talking about what he sees as basic elementary tactics and strategies or stratagems that you can use in your role-playing game, particularly fantasy role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons. I hope you enjoy this, uh, my time with Lou. I'm looking forward to a great 2024. If you like what we're doing, please like and subscribe. Uh, tell your friends and uh, leave a comment on iTunes, which, as we've talked about, I will be happy to uh, read verbatim on, on the show. So with that, here's Lou Pulsifer. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Grog Talk 2023. Uh, we're taking a little break, so I have a chance to speak with Lou Pulsifer, our good friend. Lou, good morning. How are you today? Morning. I'm here. <laughs> I'm surviving. That's what you want when you're my age. How was the convention yesterday for you? Uh, fine. Interesting. Made a lot of notes. Learned some things. Well, great. So, Lou, um, I was talking to Lou via email in running up to the convention, and, um, you know, Lou's history in gaming and game design spans close to 50 years at this point now. And, um, you know, he came up some, with some ideas of a topic he wanted to talk about. So um, what do you want to talk about today? Well, I don't know how this idea came up, but I have written an awful lot of stuff, both recently and 40-some years ago, about strategy and tactics in AD&D and in RPGs. And this is not a very common topic because so many people don't really care about strategy or tactics. But I said, well, this, this could put something together. And when I started to string my stuff together, it was 23,000 words, which is about a quarter of a book. And I haven't got it all in there. So <laughs> uh, not going to cover it all today for sure. But it's both for players and GMs, but more for players because I'm looking at it from a player's point of view most of the time. And, of course, it's not for everyone because so many people either play RPGs as a storytelling exercise, in which case the characters essentially have plot armor and it doesn't really matter whether they play well or not. And uh, it's not for hack and slash people who just want to open a door and bumble in and chop things. Although even they could get some hints out of this. The notion is, how do you succeed? Now, I just got a pamphlet uh, by Jeffro Johnson. It's how to win in D&D, but he's not actually talking about tactics at all. He's talking about something else. Well, I'm talking about how to win in a relatively competitive situation where the GM is, if not trying to kill you, at least trying to make you feel like you're going to get killed, and you could get killed. You, your character, of course, not you, we hope. <laughs> um, and that's my objective. When I play an RPG, I want to make sure that nobody in my 
party is killed or permanently maimed. Unless they're really stupid, of course. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Or, they're, or they have decided that their character would do this regardless of the outcome. Yes, and I am not accustomed to playing with people who will do that. See, I'm old-fashioned where it's vicarious participation. That's me. An even avatar. If, even if I have two or three characters, that's me. And I branched out from that so that I had neutral characters and even evil characters. But still, just because the character has low intelligence, I'm not going to do something stupid. And that's the difference between the way a lot of people play nowadays. They want to be actors and act a role. Well, foo on that. So I'm going to start with what I'd call tactical advice, and maybe we'll get to strategic advice. This is kind of backwards, but I think people are more interested in tactical advice. Right than they are in strategic advice. But some of the things start with when you're putting the party together and then what you do while you're in the adventure and possibly having combats. So the first one is select for combined arms. Now, some people don't have a choice. Every, every player has one character and there's one GM and so that's what the party is. Whoever turns up, those characters are there. But combined arms is having characters with different capabilities work together and get a synergy so that they're better than the sum of their parts. And so you want to have a magic user, you want to have a cleric, you want to have fighters, and you want to have somebody who's sneaky and so on and so forth. I used to play in uh, campaigns where there were multiple GMs, and each player had multiple characters. So then you did have a choice. And that choice could even vary with the particular mission you were going on, if you knew what you were going to do, and it varied with the GMs involved, because some GMs have tendencies one way, some GMs have tendencies to combat, some like riddles, puzzles, and so on. You want to pick a party that has a lot of variety in their capabilities, and that way, you're more likely to have what you need when the time comes. Now, that includes consider overlapping skill sets if you're playing a game that has particular skills. And, of course, even in AD&D, different kinds of uh, character classes have different kinds of skills. There's somebody who can sneak around. You want to be sure that there's somebody who's good at diplomacy if you have skill sets like AD&D 3, or rather D&D 3. Um, you want to uh, make sure that, for example, uh, if you have thieves and somebody has a cloak of elven kind, that's, that's an overlap. But that's good because if something happens to the thief or something happens to the guy with the cloak of elven kind, you still got the other one. So you want backups is another way to put at it. Like redundancy, basically. Redundancy, yes. Okay. And then you want to pay attention to that when you play. My probably favorite story from all of D&D that I've played and participated in is there was a party of about ninth-level characters on a long quest to rescue a magic user who'd picked the wrong card from a deck of many things and was lost somewhere. Right. And we're pursuing him. We got to a place. We had already had quite an adventure. And there was a room, and we knew there was an iron golem in the room. And iron golems breathe poison. So we said, how are we going to 
fight this out. Well, we had two clerics. We had lots of protective stuff. We gave them to the clerics because this is AD&D. There's no tuning magic and so on until both of them had a saving throw of two. So they had, temp- they had basically only a 5% chance of failure. Only a 5% chance of failure. And I said, let's just send one of them in, not two, because if they both get nailed, we're in big trouble. Right. Oh, no, 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 no problem, no problem. Well, of course, there's one chance in 400 that they would both roll a one. They did. <laughs> so then the rest of us, having been stripped of some of our magic items, had to charge in and hack on this golem. And I remember my, I don't know if he was, I think he was a ninth level magic user at the time, with magic armor because he was an elf. He's in there hacking on a stone golem and making yeah. saving throws against poison. Right. But there were enough of us that we took down the golem. Well, then we had two dead clerics. We had a rod of resurrection. Oh, wow. But there was no cleric to use it. Right. In the end, the GM, to make the adventure keep going, we had a non-player dwarf paladin with us, and the GM let him use the rod of resurrection, and then he left the party, so we lost him permanently. Um, But we should never have been in that position. Right. And that's what I mean by redundancy, overlapping, whatever you want to call it. It's important not to depend on the dice, and I'll talk about that later, because bad things will happen in the end. And the, and the GM at the time allowed the result, even though it was infinitesimally small, or not infinitesimal, one in 400, understanding that it could break his campaign, and then he had to mm-hmm. retrocon it, basically retcon it, like they say, yeah. to allow the campaign to continue. He could have just said, yeah, sucks to be you guys, and, and move forward with it. So. Yes. Um, or he could have found another solution that right. took a lot longer. Yeah, to but deal it, with. in yeah. order to not penalize, even though the group should have been penal- was penalized with the death and could have made it more painful, he decided to kind of expedite that. Okay. Well, the next thing is when you're preparing for the adventure, consider the kind of useful ma- mundane items you can either invent or um, just buy and have. You know, like pitons and rope and lamp oil and rations and a small mirror and torches and and bags of marbles or caltrips, you know, that stuff can be useful. You don't always have to rely on above normal powers to succeed. Um, And I wrote an article called Ready for Anything about that that describes a whole bunch of those. And of course, everybody should always carry a dagger, even if they don't know how to use it. They've got a dagger, worst comes to worst. Then the next step is to take a group inventory. Now, if you're in a campaign where you know the other characters really well, you might not need to do that. But most of the time, you want to say, who's got artillery? Right. Because you need to know what artillery you've got in the party. Uh, And that would be a wand of fireballs, a wand of lightning bolts, things like that. Um, Well, and and in general, um, I've seen, to your point, some people have suggested having basically a quartermaster in your group that is understands what everyone else has and understands that's their role because people forget what they even have in the heat of the uh, battle. Yes, so and, exactly and I feel right. if you talk about it as a group, you're more likely that somebody will remember when it, the time comes that you really need that item. Because if nobody remembers and you all get dead... <laughs> And then you say, oh, but we had this. Then you're going to feel really stupid. And that, that again, goes back to the, 
the GM, what kind of style of the GM, like you said, you have to analyze them. Some GMs will give you a hint. He, they know you have this potion of invisibility. Others will be you know, laughing inside as you're mm -hmm. scrub, mm -hmm. struggling because mm -hmm. they know you have the potion of diminution, but you, have, just, you don't remember it. So that's, those are good points. So now I've got quite a long list of, of military tactical hits, tips for your PCs. And uh, the first of these, and this is some things you do during adventure, is gathering intelligence. Sometimes you do it beforehand, sometimes during the adventure, and reconnaissance. Uh, a friend of mine who was in the military was in Belgium taking a course, and the Belgium uh, gent had learned English in England, so he says, time spent in recce is never wasted, recce being reconnaissance. <laughs> Well, it's not entirely true, because if you reconnaissance too much, then you might get spotted. Nonetheless, most D&D parties, and I think RPG parties, just don't bother much with reconnaissance. And you don't need to feel bad in that regard, because uh, even the Roman army took centuries to figure out that reconnaissance was a good thing. I mean, they got ambushed by Hannibal at one point, because they hadn't done any reconnaissance, and the whole Carthaginian army is waiting for them, and they don't even spot them. Mm. You know, then that's pathetic. Right. But even today, people forget to do reconnaissance. I'm accustomed to finding an objective and not necessarily attacking it immediately, but getting information about it, then leaving and getting everybody up to snuff, and then go back and knock it over. Because that's the smart way to do things. Right. But your average party, oh, there it is, we'll attack it. I'll give another example of, of something that happened with us. We, we had a pretty high magic uh, group in, at one point. We had some flying items. And we would go on cutting out expeditions where we knew where the enemy was. And we'd go capture one of the enemy and, you know, use, use sleep, charm, things like that. And carry them away so they just disappear from the point of view of the enemy because we were flying. Right. And then squeeze them till the pips squeak as... Uh, Prime Minister of England said about the Germans <laughs> after World War I, and we would get all the information we could out of this guy, and ESP is a great spell for that. Um, and there are all kinds of tricks you can do with fake poisons, and especially if you get two or three of them, and you're not too squeamish about injuring them, let's say. Um, and I normally played lawful good and neutral good characters, but by God, it's better for them to suffer than us to suffer. And that depends on the GM, too. There are GMs who have these bizarre ideas about uh, lawful good and so on that make the lawful good characters just stupid. Well, and I think, you know, again, we've talked about that on the show, that alignment, at least for me, segregated from a deity problematic in that it really meant, you know, your ethos should be coming from a code that, you know, if you just have this generic lawful good, it can be... It's, it's up to interpretation. But if you have the god of vengeance who's lawful good, well, then clearly, or the, you know, the god of law, um, and, and the tenets are, you know, I, this is for the holy purpose, makes it a lot simpler. Um, uh, it, it, it gets rid of the ambiguity, you know, and, and what's personal. You know, but if you're worshiping the god of mercy and love, then that's probably not where, you know, even, uh, even though it may be best, that's going to be problematic with it. So I agree with you. It's... it's but those things are hopefully identified before you, you have the, that tactic. Yes. Now, what about the GM who, um, because I think some groups do that, especially the older school groups, 
A lot, a lot of the groups, again, I think it's dependent on how vulnerable they think the characters are. Again, if you have weaker characters, they're more inclined to do reconnaissance, they're more inclined to capture people because, you know, a front assault is, is typically, uh, they're going to expect some casualties. But the, the GM, uh, what about the GM who then says, okay, I'm going to put a time pressure on your reconnaissance so that, you know, whether, you know, you have to save the princess within, by the morning or he's going to be sacrificed. Well, that is a time-honored tactic to counter that kind of thing and have to adjust. You know, no plan survives initial contact with the enemy. So if that's the way the GM does it, then you're going to have to, to be more clever about your reconnaissance or resort to something else. But especially in AD&D, as you get to higher levels, the offense dominates. So if the attacker can get the drop on the enemy, it's really rough on the enemy. Yep, the rules uh, definitely support surprise and overwhelming. If you get the initiative or surprise, you have a tremendous advantage. Yeah, yeah and if you're high enough level and you've got flying objects or you can make people fly, oh, we're going to attack that castle. Well, we're going to do an escalade where we don't climb the walls. We fly over them right. yeah. all at once from different directions. But you want to know as much as you can about the enemy in that situation. Nonetheless, it's great fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really rough on the enemy. We come to perhaps the most important of all uh, pieces of advice is fair fights are for suckers. Right. There's a war on. It's not sport. I've written whole articles about that, but that's the basic thing. There's a war on. All's fair in love and war. And your job is not to die for your country. Your job is to make the other poor bastard die for his country, to quote Patton. And so if you're looking at something that's going to be a fair fight, don't do it. There's nothing wrong with running away. Well, except certain GMs want to make sure you don't run away. Yeah, and I think that is where, if you're playing an old school game, running away should be a viable tactic. And, and I think the problem mechanically, at least with AD&D, other games are a little bit, the penalty for fleeing if you're engaged in combat is tremendously problematic. You get this opportunity to attack, you get plus two attack, rear attack, so... The tack, and, and while the player's handbook talks about fighting withdraw, there's no mechanics for it. It just has one passing mention to it, and it's never brought up again. So mechanically, if, if the GM doesn't provide a way for some reasonable cost to do a tactical withdrawal, no party's going to do it. They're going to fight to the death, mm -hmm. and then you have the death spiral, as yeah, you're I understand 5th edition is pretty bad in that respect. Yeah. Um, of course, the ideal is you run away before you have contact sure. so that you don't have that problem of the enemy getting the extra attacks. Um, and you should have, I think it's advice further on, escape routes, and you should figure out what you can do to throw things in the way, like a stink bomb. Well, okay, the enemy comes to the stink bomb. Maybe they're a little bit reluctant because they think it might be a uh, poison gas. And then if they have things that can track with their nose, that won't work for a while because of the stink bomb. You, you need to pre prepare in advance the possibility that you're going to run away. Now, if you're in contact and then you realize it's too much for you, then it makes it it's pretty tough. Right. Um, but the first thing that's tough is the willingness to run. People who play that running is a viable thing to do and then play with other people who, who don't play that way 
The other people are astonished when you say, let's run away. They're literally astonished. But they're more used to playing perhaps combat as sport where it's always going to be a fair fight. And they figure, figure the fair fight, the GM will fudge things and do things so that they'll, they'll come out on top. If you know that you can encounter situations that are way too tough for you, or at least way too tough for you at your current state, right. then you're going to run away. And the people who never encounter that are not going to run away. Uh, yeah, and to your point, I think what players sometimes forget, and it's, maybe it's a compliment to the GM, but if they're not running a prepared module and they've created it themselves, they are the play test. They're the first people playing this. They've had ideas and assumptions of where the party will be at that time, which may or may not be correct. And thus, you have a situation where the GM thought, well, you're going to be at this level of resources, but you're not. And whether they're capable of adjusting or not, they may not be. They've committed to this, some GMs. And so, again, the, the players have an assumption, the GM has an assumption, and that's when bad things happen. Of course, in 5th edition D&D, you just take a long rest and you get all your hit points back and you get all your spells back and so on. That's, that's kind of been added as a crutch so that people don't have to decide to go away and come back later. Right. They just go somewhere and rest. And so they're removing the most important element, you could say, in RPGs or in warfare in general is knowing when not to fight. That's true whether you're in command of a division or whether you're a little skirmish with a few D&D characters. And you need to remember a foolhardy act is a brave act which fails. <laughs> do you want to be foolhardy or do you want to be brave? Right. Well, to be brave, you need to be well prepared. And then it may not appear so brave to you, but it's a lot smarter because you're trying to make sure that you're going to win the fight. Smart people don't want to fight. They want to win, and it's not necessary to fight to win if you can arrange things otherwise. And the GM also has to avoid the fight to the death of the monsters. The monsters want to go home, too, in some cases. Yes, but I think it's very common that monsters just fight to the death, and it's, I don't use the morale rules per se, but sometimes the monsters are going to leave if they're not really stupid. Right. Or they're cowardly, and, you know, they, they have overwhelming numbers, but then if you've to your point, if you can quickly incapacitate or decimate them, at least temporarily, with sleep spells or webs, there should be there should be some reaction to that. And you know, good play should be rewarded. But you know, again, as you said, identifying the DM. If you know this DM is going to fight to the death, some of these tactics may or may not be appropriate because you know they're they're not going to have the same effect as you would like them to have. I played with a GM once a lot, and I'm convinced he always would fudge the game so that if we were doing too well, he would add a lot more monsters. And it seemed like every damn game, we'd get down to the point where there were just a few of us left standing. And uh, I had a magic user fighter who was much more magic user than fighter. And he'd have to, he'd run out of spells and he'd pull out his two-handed sword and whack away <laughs> and save the day, which was pretty heroic looking, but it happened, it seemed like every damn time. Awful coincidence. And one time, everybody went down, but we had some war horses. And somebody suggested to the GM, are the war horses going to attack these monsters? Well, they did, and chased the monsters away and saved the day. Right. Duh. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think some GMs, and I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat guilty of that, because, again, if you haven't play tested the adventure, 
you want a certain there is you know you want that climax and release because even though it's not a storytelling it's a collaborative game it's a game it's not a story it's, you want to tell stories tell stories somewhere else mm-hmm. it's a game but you want that tension of there's oh I thought this was going to be more powerful sometimes I'll be hey you know what good for them they quickly overcame it with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but if they've been mopping up the floor and you're you're reading the player as well they need more challenge maybe I'll throw a couple more in in there so um, because again you are play testing this and you didn't realize um, that the this encounter was supposed to be more with the hope with the result of there's going to be tension it's not to punish the thing it's to reward players for hey you're doing well I'm ratcheting up the level you know, really, that's been the frustration with me of many parties. Is we they're still at level one of tactics. You know, they they don't attack the same guy. They don't. You know, we're, we've been playing for two years, and we're still everyone is attacking everyone. You know, one on one. I'm like, why are we? Do-? So, when you start doing well, you want the game to get harder. So I I, I agree with that. So uh, hopefully, it's not a punishment. It's more of hey, you've done well, Lou. Now we're going to torture you. <laughs> well, <clears throat> pacing is important in movies and yeah and plays and novels and so on, and it's important in games. You have to have some lows to make the highs sweeter. If It's always a matter of, oh, my God, we're down to one or two people, and so on. It, right. it, it loses a lot of its high. Right. Yeah. My wife used to get frustrated when she GM'd if we did really well because she felt she was letting down the side. Get really frustrated. But it's just part of the game. Sometimes... The players are going to get lucky or they're going to be really good and the GM just has to suffer it. And sometimes it's the other way around and then the players are in real trouble unless they're smart enough to run away or so on and so forth. Yeah. So never fight for the sake of fighting is, is another way of putting all this. Because fighting in itself, yeah, you may get some experience for killing the monsters, but if the GM is accommodating of this kind of, of fighting... He will have, or she, will offer experience points according to completing missions, not killing individual monsters. So you're going along out in, in, in the step, and there's some monsters over there. Do they have anything to do with your mission? No. Run away. Right. But if you're getting experience for killing monsters, then a lot of players are going to go kill them just to get the experience. Correct. Which is doesn't fit with reality. And I try to have the games fit with reality as much as possible, as though they were a fantasy novel, maybe a kind of a brain fever fantasy novel, but still a fantasy novel. And not everybody plays that way. They're they're happy to do things differently. Well, the mechanic, um, I mean, that's why gold is XP, even though it was a crude mechanic, it provided a way to not, you could, if you collected the treasure and got it home, you got experience points. You did get experience points for monsters, but it was a fraction. If you could sneak in and take the treasure from the dragon without fighting him or her, you got tons of experience points, and you were rewarded that way versus... See, and, see and I, I would look at it as giving the players experience points because they succeeded in their mission. Sure. Because if treasure is experience points, then you turn characters into treasure hunters, money grubbers. Yeah. Which I don't, you know, I always thought when I played D&D to begin with that we were heroes and we were fighting for our God or fighting for the good and so on and so forth. And you can't be a treasure hunter money grubber when you're doing that. But different people have different opinions about what they want the game to do. 
Uh, yeah, and, and, and certainly I've moved towards away from pure gold as the experience point, but that was the, that mechanic allowed for less just killing everything and being more tactical, more planning and being sneaky as opposed to kicking down the door. Better, to your point, of just having to say, hey, if you save the princess, you get this experience points, or you save the prince or the king or whatever, and if you do it by destroying the whole castle, great, but that's probably not the right way to do it. The better way to do it is to sneak, you know, sneak in, do, do some tactical strikes, and extract the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. It's easier to keep track of when you just do the mission points, too. Right, yeah. You don't become an account. So I, at one point, I had a little basic program running on my Radio Shack Model 100 that I could put in the characters and what they needed. I had in the program what they needed to go up a level, and uh, it took a long time to go up levels when we, we played back then. And uh, I'd give them a grade, and that would determine how much experience they got. Oh, wow. You're that DM with the performance review. Everyone got a performance review. It's like work, going to work. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, sort of, <laughs> yeah. Um, plans are subject to change, but you have to plan. And we've already talked a little bit about that. Uh, some people are not good at planning, but some people are. And collectively, you can come up with a better plan than individually. So that fits in with my notion of you gather information, you find out where the enemy is, find them out first, and then gather information, and then make a plan and go execute it. And, of course... It won't be executed the way you expected because you have to adjust your plans to reality. But nonetheless, that to me is the interesting way to play the game. Yeah. Now, other people, the interesting way to play the game is bust open the door and kill everything in sight. Well, I, you know, and again, recently, when I, when, since I'm running a campaign, I think there are some folks who are natural, naturally tacticians or at least uh, interested in being a tactician. But there's this dynamic of, well, we want everyone to participate. We want, you know, every, we want input, which makes sense, but then it gets into paralysis, and then you either have the two camps. You have the tactician who gets frustrated because clearly this is the plan that makes sense, or you get the one who is, all right, time's up. I'm done, I'm done talking about it. I, I Leroy! Draw my story. That's right, exactly. The Leroy yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think that's where... I, I like this idea of when, I, when I've been in the parties is to kind of identify, you know, Lou, you're the tactician. I mean, we're going to provide you input um, with some parameters that you may have not thought of, but, you know, you're the tactician. You need to come up with the plan. doesn't mean you're the be-all, end-all, but, you know, you're going to, okay, we're trying to do this. What do you think, Lou? Blah, 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 blah. And then everyone kind of gives feedback and we move forward. You know, there, some of this old is new, the caller idea, even though it seems so archaic, uh, the idea of having someone having a role is is mm -hmm. to prevent the paralysis, which again, as a DM, is great. I can spend forty five minutes just sitting there listening to them make plans, but you know, how, so the first ten minutes is probably valuable. The next thirty five is just wasting time. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. On, I've seen on that. entire sessions that were just plans. Yeah, yeah. And as long but as they're not okay everybody with it, cares good. for that. Yeah. And to clarify, Leroy, there's a video. Of WoW, I think it yep, is, World, World of Warcraft. Warcraft, where a big group is getting ready to attack someplace, and they have to plan, and they have to know exactly what their roles are, and suddenly one of them just decides to charge in. And everybody says, Leroy! But here's the point. The rest of them should have run away and let Leroy die. Instead, they ran in, and they all died. Yep. Oh, sorry, Leroy. See you later. 
So don't waste your shot is the next point. And that's paraphrasing from Barbosa in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. This Jack, Jack Sparrow only had one shot. Uh, when you make a big attack, or when you have your big magic item, make sure that it really does what you need it to do. Don't waste it. That's a simple enough piece of advice, but it, frequently people waste their shot. Now, if you have lots of shots because you've got lots of magic items or so forth, well, that's a little bit different. But even then, I don't like to waste a shot. I want to make sure it works. So attached to that is overwhelm when you attack. Um, if you're going to attack that big bad guy, lots of you should attack that big bad guy and get rid of him fairly quickly rather than everybody spread it out and, and doing things that don't help take out that big bad guy. How do you counteract, because um, I think part of it's threat identification. People are not, some, back to the tactician, some people don't identify. They just, if the goblin, there may be a troll, uh, which is obviously a greater threat than the goblin, but the go- two things happen. One, they think, well, the goblin's right in front of me, I'm going to attack the goblin. Or, I don't want to fight the troll because the troll could actually do damage to me, so I'll let someone else deal with it, and all of a sudden no one's attacking the troll, and the troll runs around and kills Kits the scrunch the squishy creatures, squishy characters, and now we're in deep trouble. How, how do you how do you how have you seen successful to mitigate that kind of lack of threat ident- identification? Uh, I'm tempted to say training. In other words, you get people accustomed to the fact that if you play smart, you're more likely to stay alive. Your character, of course, and they have to trust somebody to be able to recognize that. And they have trust somebody who has my attitude where I don't want anybody, to, my guys to die. Right. You know, if somebody has the attitude, oh, I don't care if they die as long as I stay alive, they're not going to be trusted. Right. That's a problem. And so they can't convince people to do what needs to be done in the same way that you need, need to have happen. So that's also a matter of uh, how much experience you have with each other playing the same, not even the same characters. You, you learn that some players are can be trusted to try to keep everybody alive, and some aren't. Some are kind of chaotic. And, you know, if you have the chaotic ones, put them in the front, give them a fighter, and let them hack away. Right. You need those kinds of guys, too. But it is quite a bit a matter of trust. If you're playing with a party that you never played with before, that makes it a lot more difficult. Especially if it's a one-shot. The difference between one-shots and campaigns is driven home to me here at the con. You can play a lot smarter in a campaign than you can at a, a one shot at a con. That's what it amounts to. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's you're dealing with random players. You have no idea, and they're here to have fun, and uh, you know their agency allows them to do things that they would not normally do. It's it's almost like why they play games in the first place. Their real campaign, they they would not do a Leroy Jenkins. We're here. It's a little. Who cares? You know even though some people are taking it seriously. You're exactly right, Lou. And that gets to my next point here. When it gets to my turn, I want to make an impact. Some people say that. I don't see the game as something where everybody should shine at some point. Yeah. And everybody gets their moment of glory and so on, because that's not the way to succeed in a, in a war. The way to succeed is have everybody do what they need to do so that the group succeeds. So some people have the point of view that the group must succeed, and other people have the point of view that I must succeed. 
So when it's their turn, they want to make an impact, even if they do something that's not the best thing for the party. How can you counteract that? Again, kind of training and experience. And sometimes we can't keep this person in the party. It's just not going to work in the campaign. They're just, they don't cooperate is what it amounts to. People have to cooperate. It's a cooperative game. It's the greatest cooperative game ever is Dungeons and Dragons and other RPGs. Right. The, the motif of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the problem becomes is when you're the only one who thinks that way. I mean, I have groups. I've had yes. groups where everyone then maybe, does their own thing. And maybe then, you shouldn't play That's with right. Them, yes. You are the problem. Yes. <laughs> you're not the problem. You're just in the wrong group. Everyone else has been having more fun. On, on the other hand, when you're in a situation like that, you hang back and let them get themselves killed. But that's not fun. And it's interesting because you know, part of it, it's almost, I hate to call it parenting, but it's like, okay, they're going to learn. We're gonna, they rush in and they all die or we all, it's a terrible beat down. And you think, okay, we're going to learn. We taught you and you may even bring up nicely, wow, we should have probably done this night. Like, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden we roll up new characters, whatever happened. We do this. We didn't learn anything. It's like we have this amnesia uh, of that. And I've seen groups over and over again. They're like, it's almost they attribute their success or failure to luck. Not to the plan. Yes, and there are people who do that. Um, a friend of mine had a 12-year-old son, and he believed in board games that the result was not due to skill or experience. It was due to luck. Well, anybody who believes that is just not going to feed in the long run. No, he who lives by the dice dies by the dice. Some players want to have a rush of adrenaline, and those are people who want to roll the dice. Now, I noticed in that uh, Dwarven Forge yesterday, the biggest cheer occurred when a guy was rolling a um, saving throw, I think it was, and he rolled a 10, and he didn't know whether that succeeded or not. And the GM finally said, I think that was you, yep. you saved. Hey! Um, and that's the way things go, because there's a lot of dice in, in D&D, but it's not exactly, not really a dice game, because it's like a microcosm of life. In life, if you leave things to chance, you're going to have more problems than the person who doesn't leave so many things to chance. They want to make their saving throw. You know, one of the things that sticks in my mind of all the years of playing D&D is, my magic user was on a broom, and he also had uh, boots that let him levitate. Right. And so he'd fly around on the broom above an enemy out, outdoors, and if necessary, stop, and so on. And somebody cast this disintegrate on him, mm. and I made my saving throw. And that sticks in my mind, because if I'd got disintegrated, it would have been really ugly. <laughs> okay, sometimes you have to roll the dice. It's like... You don't get to my age without having been lucky in various respects, especially. But you're minimizing the amounts of roles. Exactly. And, and you shouldn't be in looking for, you shouldn't be go looking for roles. It's kind of like playing uh, uh, Texas Hold'em. And, you know, you want to go in with the highest probably. You want them to fold, even though you think you're going to win. It's better for them to fold and take the money you have than to say, oh, let's see what happens. Because even though it's, it, unless it's 100%, you have a chance to lose. You want to reduce the number of times you have to roll a die to save your bacon. And as the DM or GM, they should encourage 
Rolling should be for a plot thing that is indeterminate based on the actions of what the player did. In other words, you know, this, this idea of, oh, they're climbing, you know, climbing walls. I've been as guilty. Like, I'm, okay, all of a sudden I'm making them check every th 30, you know, three feet, you know, if you read the rules. Well, eventually they're going to fail. So just do one time if it's significant. If, it's a tr if they're climbing a tree, I'm not going to make them make a roll, even if they're a fighter, unless they've got, you know, 300 pounds of junk on them. Yeah. Just let them climb the tree. Don't yeah. make everything a roll, because, yeah. unless you really want it to be this chaos. Um, but you know, I've had to... Pull back the amount of rolling of dice. Make it where, yeah, disintegrate. Yeah, I'm sorry that the, there was an action you have to deal with. We can't just say, "Well, I move out of the way." That's that's what it is. And to your point, you have to minimize that. That's great advice. Now, a lot of this advice comes down to patience, simple patience, and the patient adventurer is likely to be more successful than the one who's impatient. But I'm not sure that's something you can teach somebody. They might learn it over time, playing adventures and seeing where impatience did not succeed. But patience is really, really important. And some people are just naturally more patient than others. And again, if, depending on whether you consider this a good or poor skill of a GM, if, if the party is deliberating and they're sitting in the, you know, standing in the dungeon deliberating what they're doing, one of the tips that is given is, well, if they're dilly-dallying too much, start rolling for random encounters, you know. And, and then you have the tactician who's getting frustrated. It's like, see, we're messing around. See, the DM's rolling dice. We need to move forward. And then you get the Leroy Jenkins moment because people are tired of thinking yeah. about it. So um, as a GM, if they're making progress and it's deliberate, you should probably reward it by not putting random encounters. That's my, my opinion. Because you don't want a situation where you get people frustrated and then if you want patience and you want good play, you have to at least give them a chance to figure these things yes. out. Yes. And of course, the opposite side of patience is you can't wait too long. Yeah. Um, you can't get into analysis paralysis because that's going to end badly. Yeah. I'm rolling dice. If I see you guys, you're on the third version of this, I'm, I'm starting to roll D6s for random encounters or whatever. And we could say a large proportion of good play depends on good timing, where, again, you can be patient, but it, when it's time to go, you've got to go. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the history of many very successful generals in warfare, they knew when to go, or at least most of the time they did, and they knew when not to go. And that's an awful lot of what makes the difference in a, in a, a battle. It's... But it's the you know, mindset. The older I get, the more I see it. Yeah, the mindset, I think, is something that has to be a, agreed upon by the group. To your, you, are you playing with the right people who see this, not as a war game, but as a, really a campaign in its purest sense, that you are a series of encounters, you know, a series of battles that end up with the, the determination that you would want to see. So um, if they don't have that mindset, a lot of this is going to fall either on deaf ears or not be really adhered to to the discipline they need. Okay, now I have reached the sort of philosophy part. Good. Um, tactical styles in combat-oriented role-playing games, fantasy role-playing games. There are two extremes of approaching a fight in a magic-rich environment. These are something akin to American football team that runs the ball constantly, which was, used to be called four yards in a cloud of dust. Right. 
and a team that passes constantly. 60 years ago in football, the four yards in the cloud of dust predominated. Nowadays, it's passing, although you'll often see that if one team rushes the ball a lot more than the other, they win. Now, um, in role-playing game terms, the first method is charging and cut the enemy down thanks to suitable character classes, lots of perks and magic items, as in the ninth-level character I saw uh, not too long ago doing more than 90 hit points of damage in one round. The second is to set up a defense where the specialist uh, spellcasters use area effect and selected individual spells to blow the enemy away. Uh, In the first method, the characters are more like running backs and linemen, and in the second, they are quarterbacks and receivers and linemen. And the first, the linemen fire out and try to wipe out whoever's there and make a hole for the running back. In the second, the linemen are doing pass blocking. And they're waiting for the quarterback to do the damage, the quarterback and the wide receivers. Now, since role-playing games are about magic, to me, when I played, I knew I was going to be a magic user. There's never any doubt. Um, I want to see magic prevail. But there are a lot of people who don't. Uh, But I think magic prevailing is safer because you're less likely to get caught out. You're less likely to get uh, even your linemen injured, your fighters, and and possibly your clerics. And uh, you're just going to be better off. But again, that can depend on the GM. I remember being in a, a party once where we had no magic user at all. Made me very nervous. Yeah. We had a cleric, and we had miscellaneous other people who didn't have magic. That's nuts. And, you know, some people don't want to be the magic user because the magic user often has to stand around. Well, magic users can throw daggers. If you've got dwarves in the party, you can certainly throw over their heads. A dagger can do some damage. Get going. Right. Well, and your idea of this, you know, run or path... I've always seen, uh, and I may not be using the right term, you're a historian, almost like mechanized infantry is what D&D is. You've got this armor that is powerful but is vulnerable to certain attacks, and then you have the infantry supporting it, uh, and, you know, the infantry is vulnerable to other attacks, but as long as the armor is in good shape, so you have this kind of combined... That's the combined arms. Yeah. And the combined arms, to me, in... in RPGs is to have the magic cooperate with the non-magic right. and do the things that they're best at. And, of course, stealth is very good. Like, um, what's the job of a monk? The job of a monk is to sneak around to where the enemy magic is and keep it busy so it can't cause harm. And you can talk about rogues in general doing the same thing. To me, that's their objective in a tactical battle. Um, they can only do it for so long because they don't have the hit points and so on, but they can cause great trouble to the enemy when the enemy magic is not f- functional and your magic is. And, and I, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I actually wrote a program long ago on my Model 100 and uh, kept track of who did how much damage for an entire big fight, you know, weekend fight. 
So you you were you were like World of Warcraft before World of Warcraft. You kept track of the damage per you know damage per Perhaps. Per yeah, that's great. Anyway, the magic users did a lot more damage. Well, it's that whole what quadratic uh, uh, power level of the magic. Well, the magic users are firepower, and yeah. the 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 fighters are melee. And there's yes, different rules. Lanchester's rules about that sort of stuff. Lanchester's equations that the firepower does more damage. And, of course, it has longer range, too. So, to me, you should take advantage of that. If you don't have any magic users, get some magic items if you possibly can. But, you know, if you don't have the magic items either, well, you're in trouble. And I think a good players. we were talking about this last night after the tournament, I will play, there are certain players who will play whatever the party needs which is, again, a different play style than other players are playing now, which is, I want to play the character I want to play. You know, this time, I want to play you know, the paladin, Not be, even though we may have three other paladins, but that's, it's my turn to play the paladin. Versus, to your point, I may not want to play the magic user, but we need a magic user, and I understand that magic user I'm playing has to be very tactical, very judicious. I can't just pick mending and, and message and these spells. I have to pick spells that are appropriate for the game we have, uh, same thing with the cleric. The cleric may not want to have cure light wounds times five, but if, if you're having if you're a melee heavy group, and you're getting a lot of damage. You need to have healing. Uh, you know, you, you're going to have to pick some of that spells. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to me, high level clerics are slightly insane because yeah. there's always been this pressure on them to be hospitals, which right. I despise. Right. You've got to find other ways to cure your guys, or just don't get them hurt. Um, so my high level clerics tried to get. Belts of giant strength and like bash down doors and boom! Because <laughs> they saw those damn fighters getting two attacks per round and they right. didn't. But that's just me. Well, and we've put in the mechanic and I think uh, ways to, to allow them to have different spells because it is unfortunate that all they're doing is just healing. Well, my house rule is they can memorize twice as many as they can use and that takes care of that. Oh, okay. So they can memorize a bunch of, he- of cure light wounds, but they don't necessarily use them. Because they've memorized another set of other spells. Gotcha. And that's simple. And I also let clerics choose one kind of weapon that they could use in addition to the blunt weapons. So they could choose two-handed swords or one-handed swords or even bows. And that worked to help make the cleric more more reasonable. Of course, I always let thieves have six-sided hit dice, too, instead of four-sided. Because four-sided is just... Nuts. But, you know, everybody has their house rules, and, and someday I should write articles about my house rules. Yeah, lose rules. That can be that. Now, to go back to this analogy of, of four yards of a cloud, cloud of dust and uh, passing, the cloud of dust treats the fight more as a sport, I think, and the pass them to death treats it more as war. Right. But that's, that's my point of view. And uh, <clears throat> well, yes, the, the, the passing relies heavily on cooperation. Yeah. Whereas the running can rely on one really great running back. You know, if you got O.J. Simpson or Barry Sanders in there, your offensive line may not be that good, but they can still do really well. So the uh, running style runs to individual flair. And obviously I'm in favor of cooperation rather than individual flair. If you got those flair guys and they can do their great running, that's fine, but still... 
my main idea is pass them to death. Use magic to, to kill things or both, to achieve whatever you're going to do. Yeah, both ultimately in, in football, American football, which is a little different in that it's a time constraint and, you're not, and you, there is some attrition, but it's not permanent attrition. You know, people can get injured. You're trying to exert your will and oh, you know, overwhelm them so that they will give up the fight. They'll just base, they'll play, but they're not winning. One is you beat them into submission. The other one, you, you, you continue to score so much that they, there's no way they can catch up and they just say, I give up. So to your point, I agree with you. In the context of D&D, you don't want to trade blows with them. And, and that's where the hit point inflation is a problem because people go, oh, I got 70 hit points, so I'll just trade blows with you. Oh, but uh, now I don't have 70 hit points anymore. Yeah. yeah. But they, they think, oh, that's when the cleric, and you get this cycle of they, want, they fight, they lose 20 hit points, and then they're immediately going and, to the cleric. And, and don't get me wrong, fighters wade in. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary, and you can have great fun just slaughtering things, but that's not the objective right. of doing well. And I have a quotation here from Sir Winston Churchill, but a lot of other people have said the same thing. Battles are won by slaughter and maneuver. The greater the general, the more he contributes in maneuver, the less he demands in slaughter. And I take maneuver in its broadest sense of uh, using stratagems, which I'll get to at some point if we have time, and uh, using magic instead of relying on brute force. Now, we've already talked about who do you trust in relation to whether people will conform to this particular way of playing. Um, Know your objective and stick to it is good advice because a lot of people, again, don't follow the plan because they don't have to follow the plan, and then they get themselves in a lot of trouble. And you need to know whether your objective is to get the treasure and get out or to kill the dragon. It's two very different things, and you have to go about it very different ways. Right. Um, And in that respect, if you don't have enough information to lead you to a specific goal, then you might have to run an adventure that's a scouting expedition and gather information. Now, uh, it's not likely people will do this anymore, but uh, the advice was, this is from 40 years ago, keep a monster chronicle. In other words, a really avid player tactician will write down notes about the monsters that you've encountered and not rely just on memory. And, and, and of course, some people have better memories than others. I have a good memory, so I don't write down what I should, probably. Well, and it's, it's, well, I think that's great advice, and I still think it's pertinent today, because, especially if you've been playing for 40 years, you've played multiple editions, a ghoul in first edition versus second edition, versus, or a dragon in first edition. They have nuances, and I've had games where, I've had games where the party was convinced that this monster did this or didn't do this, and mm-hmm. they were incorrect. Uh-huh. Even if it was a canon monster, they just forgot we had a situation, oh, in first edition dragons, uh, first edition dragons can see invisible creatures. So, but they, forgo- they w- forgot that thing, and so they're, you know, they're all drinking their little potions of invisibility, cast invisibility, they're trying to sneak in, and then they were stunned when they got breathed on from, for, by acid because they were... So I think that's very important. And if you're a DM who likes to mix it up and say, well, my, you know, everyone's a goblin. You know, that's what the villagers call all creatures. They're all goblins or they're all demons. Or, you need to keep track of that. So that, I think that's very important because you forget 
even if it's memory, your canonical knowledge is not what you think it is. That's a great point. Right, and I remember playing D&D uh, with the three booklets and, and Greyhawk, and we had the monsters memorized and so on and so forth. Um, and I'm sure people do that with 5th edition today, but in general, memories are just not as good as writing things down. Of course, if you write it down and don't look at it, it doesn't help you. Yeah. But now we have all kinds of notebook computers and so on to add, yes, to uh, keep track of that information. It makes it easier than writing it down longhand, which is how we had to do it back when. Um, Pride for Rescue Escape, which we've talked some about before. Um, but the ultimate thing there is you have a wish and you leave it with somebody reliable, whoever that might be, so that if your party leaves and never comes back, they can use, say, commune to find out whether you're all dead. And if you are, wish it away. That's what wishes are for to me, not for other things. But most people, they want to use up a wish to do something much less important than saving the entire party. Very banal and not, not yeah. something really yeah. relevant. Security and camp. This is an odd one. When you're outdoors or even indoors, yes, you have to keep people on watch. But there are lots of things you can do, like uh, set up alarm spells if you have some. Or uh, we used to put up a, a wire six inches high with little bells on it some distance out so that anybody walking through would ring the bells and then we could wake up and deal with whatever it happened to be. And you can think of other tricks like that that make your camp safer. What you can't do is build a Roman camp like a Roman army because they had lots of slaves right. to build the camp and their four legions were occupying 25 kilometers of road. So the guys who got there first would build the camp. And by the time the guys who got there in the end, the camp was built. But you can't do that in D&D. In &D. Um, you know, barbed wire is a wonderful thing, but you can't keep barbed wire and put it around the camp every time. It's too hard to deal with. Okay, now here's one that's a general point of view for the whole thing. Avoid mental passivity. You want active players, not passive players. Now, people aren't active all the time in everything they do. They're not passive all the time in everything they do. But in certain areas of endeavor, they will likely be one or the other. So I would say war gamers tend to be active. They want to make things happen rather than have things happen to them. People who are in the game for the story want things to happen to them. They're not so interested in making things happen. And that's what happens when you watch a blockbuster movie. You're, you're entirely passive. When you read a comic book, you have to put some imagination into it. When you read a novel, you have to put more imagination into it. And that's why some people watch movies but not read novels, because they're being passive. Well, if you have players who are active in a role-playing game, they will be trying to think of ways to do things better. They will be trying to think of what their role is and what they need to do in that respect. And that's much better than passive players who just sort of point me in the right direction and I'll whack it. Now, you can cope with those by having them be fighters or other types that are really good at melee and point them in the right direction and have them whack it. And if they're willing to do what you tell them to do, that's fine. They, they serve their purpose. 
As a DM, how do you, if you're the GM, how do you, because clearly we want active players, how do you encourage that style of play? Um, well, of course, you can act, ask people, what do, you, what do you think we should do? You can try to bring them into the discussion. But some people just don't want to say a whole lot. And, you know, I am naturally a reticent person. I'll listen rather than talk, but I've learned from teaching and so on that sometimes you've got to talk. Um, and you can point out to people that when they've been passive, but some people are just going to be passive, and then you learn how to work them into the party. Now, another thing here, again, old campaigns, multiple GMs, multiple characters, and also we like to have a party of six to eight characters. And if you only had four players, you have eight characters by having each player play two characters. Right. So if one of those is a magic user and one of those is somebody who, who really gets involved in things, then they don't mind so much that they have a magic user. The magic user will do things when he, need, he or she needs to. They've got something to focus on. So actually, I think it makes for a better game if the players are willing to do it. I run into lots of players that say, oh, I don't know how I could possibly play two characters. That's, we used to play with two characters all the time. And I think that's partly because they're wanting to be actors rather than vicarious participators. Because if they're vicarious participators, when they're that character, they just do what they do as that character. Whereas if they're actors, they've got to figure, well, what, what's this character's motivations and what are they going to do and what's their background? You know, one of the things that we never did and don't to this day is write detailed backgrounds. You don't have a 12-page backstory for your characters? I don't have a one-page backstory. I don't have a, I don't have a paragraph right. backstory. Right. The characters get their character from the adventures. Exactly. If and the if other thing yeah. that does is, if you have a 12-page backstory, the referee's a lot more uh, inclined to not kill you or not let you die. And I think that's what happens in a lot of the story campaigns. They have all these big backstories, and the GM tries to incorporate the backstories into the game. But I've watched games that I call Me Too D&D, or whatever game it was, where the players tended to interact one-on-one -on -one with the referee, the GM, and everybody else would watch. And they would do their thing and so on. Then the next person, and they would do their thing and so on. And then the next person. So most of the time, the other players weren't participating in the game, which strikes me as terribly boring. But that's the way they like to do it, so they could have their 15 minutes to shine. And that's related to storytelling instead of playing a game. It was, uh, yeah, your point of that is they're part of it. They're list, they're, if they are listening, they're actively listening to see what that person is doing so they can incorporate it into their story when it's their turn. So they... It's almost improvisation, where it's like an improv group that they're getting together. And, and, and that's what they're emphasizing. They're still playing a game. They're all rolling dice. They're, they're, it is part of the D&D, but that's what the emphasis is versus the style of play that we're used to and we think is true to the older game is, again, you're more of an avatar. You respect the boundaries that it has. Clearly, if you're a paladin, you're going to do certain things versus a thief. But it's, you're not consumed by the background of that, and you're not going to just rule the thing. You're there to, for a collaborative mission. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, it's coordinated efforts is what you need yeah. if you're going to succeed. Now, um, 
I have a note here about keeping reserves in reserve. Uh, And that includes bodyguards. If you have enough characters, you can assign a bodyguard to the chief magic user or, or two chief magic users. Their job is to keep them safe because they're going to do most of the damage. They're the quarterbacks, in right. effect. It's like keeping a running back in to block for the quarterback. And this can prove very effective if you have enough characters. Now, one of the big changes in D&D was third edition D&D, where they recommended a party of four characters. Right. You can't do much cooperation. It, <laughs> you can't protect the back. You can't assign bodyguards because there's only four of you. So that meant individual characters had to be kind of one-man armies yep. or one-woman armies. And so even a magic user, he could be getting meleeed and he can still cast spells and so on. And, and he might have to make a saving throw, but he can do it. I think it was a much worse game just by changing the number of characters. One of Lou's laws of survival in, in games, in uh, RPGs, is the survivability of the party varies with the square of the number of party members. So a party of four has a survivability of 16, and a party of eight has a survivability of 64. In other words, four times as much. Even though they're twice the size, right? Even though it's twice the size, it's four times the survivability. Um, four guys... If you're really low level and you get hit with a sleep spell and things go badly, you're all done. Yep. You're dead. Eight guys, it's pretty hard to put eight, eight to sleep at once. So I advocate larger parties. But the rules advocated small parties. Well, when I DM'd third edition, I just made them bigger parties. I hell with you guys. At least that's something you can change. Well, and I think in fifth edition, not that I played a whole lot of it, but they've moved towards the pets and the familiars and the different, these sort of surrogate creatures that are there. So, so now... They, they amount to another party member. Right. They, yeah. they have these uh, proxy abilities. So each of them have a pet or a familiar or some, uh, some other thing, a sentient magic item, all these other... So you've got this cacophony of things that they do. And instead... And, and this mitigates the... You know, even though you had two characters, you tried, at least the GM would typically try to say, hey, you can't just like treat them as you know, schizophrenia where they're the same person, you have two personalities. You, you know, the magic user is not going to give his 10,000 gold pieces to the fighter just for no Right, reason. they still have to be separate, yes. This mitigated that by now. Well, they're basically just extensions of the one player, but they get all the features of it. You know, I can send my familiar to do this, and they, they can attack, they can do everything else, but they're completely subjective to subjugated to the, the main character. And now you've got these pets with armor and all this other stuff. And, and, and you know, my ability to deal with uh, multi-processing using a computer term, multitasking, multi-threading has is, is become d- diminished. And the, I like the idea of two characters I can deal with. Two characters with three henchmen and four, you know, there's a cast of thousands. Yeah. And I just, that's too much. Not fun. Now, we're, now we're, we've got an army moving around. I remember having a homunculus way back when. Sure. And they were fine until they got dead, and then you took two to 20 hits, so you had to be fairly high level. And the third time I had a homunculus turned into a popsicle was the last homunculus. <laughs> you know, a cold blast from a wand, and 
He didn't have a prayer. He had two hit dice. <laughs> it, I suppose I should say, and that yeah. was that. No more homunculi for best me. Use, best use of the mending spell, folks, for those keeping at home. You need a mending spell to make homunculus. An elementary thing. Don't take separate routes inside a dungeon or even outside. There's often a temptation to go separate ways, but this, this and another version of don't split the party yeah. unless you have a lot of information about what's going on. There are times when splitting the party works out. And in the, the tougher you are, the higher level, the more that even if you split the party, you still got a hell of a party. But low levels do not split the party. Another part of that is don't run away in a direction you've never been. Because you might run into that gelatinous cube and you're all dead. So you're ringing the dinner bell for the rest of the dungeon yes. if you do that. Run back the way you've been before if you possibly can. How do you square the advice? I don't disagree with that. How do you square the advice with reconnaissance? Because typically the reconnaissance is you send the thief or the sneaky mm -hmm, guy or mm -hmm. gal to go well, sneak around, and then it's a solo adventure until they do something dumb. You hope they don't go too far. Right. That's the first thing. Um, the second is pick somebody who can hang on their own, but it is dangerous. And... So that's a limitation on scouting. More likely, you need to send two or three people who can complement each other. And so if one gets nailed, the other two can bail him out or her. Uh, but that's a judgment you have to make. It's the same as an army makes had to make a judgment. We send out a reconnaissance unit. How big are we going to have it be? Where are we going to have it go? Um, what are we going to do if it doesn't come back on time and so forth? Yeah, but if you have two paths, you're not, send, you're not splitting the group and going off two separate paths. You may send a reconnaissance group to probe the one side, see if it's more dangerous, if it's getting towards objectives, come back quickly, understanding that engagement is the last thing you're doing. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, avo you're avoiding any yeah. kind of encounter. Yeah. Scouting requires a certain state of mind, yes. Right. You're, you're yes. not there to engage, even if, even if there's treasure, even if there's, you know, you got the one guard. Oh, I'm just, no, you don't, your purpose is observation and, and, and that. Because that, that's where the DM can be tempting you. Oh, there's a pile of money. Or there's, oh, there's one, there's one half-sleeping orc. We can just take him out. Of course, you know, those are the kind of things where, no, that's anathema to your mission. Your mission is to understand what, what forces we're dealing with, to your point. What's the strengths, the weaknesses, and then we as a group can figure out tactically what we can do. Okay. Sometimes uh, you have to go away, get yourself up to 100%, and then come back. Uh, so you want to get out while you have some bottom, quote-unquote. You've still got some capability. You don't use up all your spells and so on, and you're still in the dungeon or, or still in the adventure area. You've got to get out when you've still got some left. Oh, that's boring, you know. But if you want to stay alive, if the GM is out to, to get you, then that's what you've got to do. Of course, any GM can kill any party anytime they want. We saw that with the incomprehensible death. Um, still, you hope that the GM is, doesn't have that attitude, because if he does, does you are dead. Um, I, I'm always amazed by GMs who say, oh, the party is so powerful, yeah, I can't kill any of them. I don't. Oh, come on. There's a zillion ways to deal with that. But uh, some GMs aren't as good as other GMs. You know, if you have a GM who's persona as a player is hack and slash and 
passivity, he's not going to be very dangerous compared to somebody who has the kind of attitude we're talking about. I, when, when I hear that, I think they're saying, I can't challenge them anymore with, with my skills and what I'm doing. And my fear is the only alternative I have is instant death. Rocks fall and you die. There, there's no rating the challenge. And D&D is known to be you know, a really good game up to a certain level, and then it becomes superheroes because, you know, again, you have all these capabilities, yes. and it becomes more problematic. Um, don't back yourself into a corner. Another bit of elementary related to running away. If you back yourself into a corner, you can't run away. And running away needs to be a viable tactic. Um, and we've already talked about guarding your spellcasters. Now, staying alive after the adventure. Most people ignore this, and this is where the GM can really get you if he wants to. Um, for example, properly played, once you come back from adventure, you should be doing things like using ESP and detect uh, no alignment and so on to make sure that you don't have a doppelganger mm. or somebody isn't charmed or cursed or otherwise no longer on your side. You should search for hidden treasure in the treasure that you pulled out. Uh, you know, well, this, this was a fine-looking sword, but it's not magical. However, inside, if you unscrew the, the pommel, there's a magic ring. So you got to do that kind of thing. Uh, active people will, passive people will not, or the referee, the GM, will provide something that you just give the, the item to somebody and they find all that needs to be found. Right. Which is okay, and that makes sense with passive players. I think realistically what happens in that case is, unless the GM is exceptional, and I don't consider myself exceptional, I'm okay. What happens, you're at the end of the session, they finish up the adventure, you're, it's, it's already past the session time. You don't want to spend the beginning of the next session going through and adjudicating all this. Just go, yeah, 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 yeah. you figure it out. So it's, it's more of a hand-waving for expedience. It's back to the, the, the dwarf paladin doing the Rod of Resurrection. It's not because it's a gameplay, and it's not good gameplay. It's because people are tired at the end of the session. And so if you, but I think that's very valuable I mean, I have put in things like, oh, you know, your home base got attacked because they see you keep carting in all this money. If you're not showing yourself hiding your money, you keep bringing thousands of gold pieces and you leave it for three weeks, uh, you know, the Thieves Guild's going to get uh, attention to that. And, of course, they get angry and mad, and then you'll have to deal with, you maybe you should probably bribe the Thieves Guild to stop stealing your stuff. You know, protection is, is part of it. And I think players hate that for the most most part, they don't see that as a real world. They see it as the DM screwing them. Whereas, you know, from my perspective, that's the real world. You know, I've heard of people nowadays saying a secret door is a dirty GM trick. <laughs> because they're used to playing video games. You know, an awful lot of what happens in, in tabletop role-playing games comes from video games. In video games, the advice for years has been always hold the hand, always make sh sure the player knows where they go next. Yeah. And secret doors... Don't fit that. Right. So we have to cope with video game attitudes because most people who play tabletop games actually still play video games more than they play tabletop games. Um, about magic, you want to use it well, and you can use deception in place of magic. And by using magic well, I mean don't do something with magic that you can safely do with non-magical means. Don't waste your magic. 
kind of goes back to don't waste your shot. Keep those spells in reserve. Spell you use now may be greatly missed later. And I think that's where the game style, newer additions, make replenishing spells or having frequent spells a lot easier, whereas older additions, it was what, a premium. <laughs> what the newer game style is, is don't make the players make important choices. Take care of it for them. And the old style is make the players make important choices. Put them on the horns of a dilemma of what they need to do. And again, we, the new style is, goes back to video games. Because a video game, you're supposed to win in the end. It's a puzzle. It's not a game. Single player. And so everybody expects to succeed. So there are some games like Dark Souls and other ones where there's you know, these masochists yes, who play them. Yes. And I respect them. They're, you know, they literally, you are punished for bad, bad play, and, it's, and it takes a lot of skill. So there's lots of tricks you can do with potions, especially when you're fake potions, I mean. Especially when you're interrogating prisoners. You know, you put some ingredients together and it tastes bad and it smells bad, that's a fake potion. Yeah. Um, and if you have several prisoners, you can do tricks like uh, make a guy look like he's dead, one of the prisoners, until he's drank half this potion. He's not really dead. And then you haul him away, and the other prisoner has seen this. Now, drink this potion, you. No, 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 no. You might get some information out of him. It's not torture. Right. I mean, it's mental torture, but we don't care about that. Enhanced interrogation, I think, is the term that's been used. Yes, that's a good term. That's a good term. And you can make imaginative use of spells in various ways, like uh, minor globe of invulnerability. And different GMs rule different ways. Some rule it doesn't move. Some rule it moves with the guy who cast it. Um, so if you take minor globe of invulnerability and then the character's got fireballs or lightning bolts, you can be a one-man wrecking crew, and when they try to use magic on you, it doesn't work. If you don't have Nissel's magic aura, you can put some other spell on something, like invisibility, and then paint it. And it's just like Nissel's magic aura. So use magic to save effort in general. Uh, I heard once of a group of characters who like to put explosive runes on paper, fold the paper into an airplane, and throw it at the enemy. Now, I would rule that nobody in the world knows how to make paper airplanes, and that takes care of that. When you're the GM, the first thing you have to do is look at it skeptically and say, nah, you don't know how to do that. Uh, vellum and parchment, little, it's not like paper in a lot of sense. I mean, you've got to decide. Yeah, it's true, too. It's uh, heavier. And do they really have that? It doesn't you know? fold the right way. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, but bringing modern things in is, is, and you don't want to punish good play, imaginative play, but when they're trying to replicate um, technology. Yes, there's always a question of how much can the players use what they know right. that wouldn't be known in a fantasy world. Well, it's, I'm okay with them, you know, leveraging some science, because again, this is not a simulation. It's a, it's a, it's a fantasy, but having, um, you know, if they're trying to make a gun and there's no guns, let's, no, we're not going to allow guns. Wanda Magic Missiles is your gun. That's what you want, to, you want to call it. Getting toward the end, fortunately. Um, <laughs> uh, adventuring and referees or GMs. 
every RPG is a negotiation between the referee and the players. Work in the refs, as we call it. Work in the refs. And you need to know your referee and work the ref. Um, for example, when things are going badly, think of something that could happen that would help you out and talk about that and see if the referee will bite on it and help you out. It's a simple thing. If you don't do it, and again, it requires you to be active, not passive. If you don't do it, then the referee is not likely to come up with it on his own. Um, and that's the, the bottom line there. And never give up until you're dead and, and gone in any game. Keep working the referee. See if you can persuade them to fudge in some way. And, of course, you may have seen something like this. A character was captured, partly his own fault. The uh, enemy asked the character if there was anyone who might pay a ransom for him. Well, obviously, he should, if there isn't, he should lie. He should work the, the enemy. Instead, he said no, so they killed him. Right. Duh. And, and, and the pre-work, the act, to your point, the act of character is working the ref before the session. So a quick example, they were, the party was being chased by pirates. They set up a, a dinghy with a fire, drifted away. I said, wow, that's a really good plan. I'll give you a 95% chance that it's going to work. They roll 96 well, that was a very generous chance. Right. Very generous chance because it was dark, everything else. So uh, the, they were in a small sailing ship. The other ship was a galley with rowers. And before the next session, one of the players was like, here's an article about the Phoenicians that they, only, they can only row for eight hours at a time. In other words, he was already working that, well, if I have the good wind and this and that, I can, we can escape even though they've seen us. Again, I didn't now, I took it as, okay, they're working the refs. I didn't take that as an insult. I said, well, you know, we're not doing Phoenician simulation here. I appreciate that. Um, but, and also the fact that it says in the rules they can, they can sail 72 miles a day. I'm not changing the rule because the Phoenicians only sailed for eight hours. That's what it says in the book. But you're working the ref all the time to, to give you an advantage is clearly part of the game. That's exactly right. Now, um, another way of looking at the direct approach and the indirect approach. And this is related to the four yards and the cloud of dust and, and the passing. The direct approach, and this is in warfare in general, is to identify where the enemy is strong and go and beat them, you know, attack them and beat them and take the enemy down that way. Direct action in your face. Mm -hmm. The other way is to use stratagems. Stratagems are trickery. And uh, there were two Romans who wrote entire books, small books about stratagems. And uh, they used historical examples. And I know a fair bit about Roman and Greek history and so on, but I didn't know many of the examples. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and some of them were uh, the kinds of things you might see in a novel or, or uh, a movie. You know, the trick of well, they sent out some foragers and we attacked and we Nailed all the foragers, and so then we took their clothes and put them on our guys and had them go back, and they got in, and they took the city. Yep. It really happened. Uh, and, of course, the Trojan horse is a famous stratagem that was the Trojans being kind of stupid. Um, stratagems 
are trickery that some kind of scheme that gets you where you need to go without having to fight or without having to fight only a little bit. And it's important. It's part of making the game war and not a sport. It would be regarded as dirty tricks in a sport. It would be regarded as cheating. But you're not playing a sport. You're at war. Right. Um, I could go into that in a lot more detail, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. But the theme that you're wanting to present is if you accept the premise that the game, to a, to a large extent, is not a sport. I mean, people play it that way, but if you take the premise, these are the, these are the behaviors and traits and the advice that you would give them, and so that's, that's where you're coming from. If, if you want it to be, you know, if you're, if you're you know, the guy who wants to be, oh, here's your sword back and fight again. Okay, that's fine, that's, but that's a different game. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's not a different sport. Here's an example of a simple thing you can do with mundane items that can help you out, and that is... Put a hard surface, for example, made of wood or metal, and line the bottom of your backpack so that it won't fall out and your stuff will fall out, mm. or somebody will help it fall out. And, you know, a simple thing, and it actually probably make the backpack work better in many respects. You can think of all kinds of stuff like that. Communication aids. Um, you know, some people, when they go in a dungeon, they mark the walls. So that they can follow the, their path back. Well, that's just good sense. And that's been mitigated. Unfortunately, people don't think of that because we're using virtual displays now and people are using virtual yeah. maps. Yeah. We, they're very beautiful, but I've gone back to them mapping. They have a big sheet and they map it and I describe it. And they get frustrated when I go, well, that's what you think it is. Because I want the... I want the quote-unquote fog of war, or you can't have sloping passages and this and that if it's on a, on a you know, a TTR uh, a table, virtual tabletop. So they, they, oh, this takes too much time. I'm like, mm, that's okay. I got all day. Here's another simple thing, a torch adapter. You have your torch and you put a square thing, maybe that big, with a hole in it. You put that on the torch so that if you throw the torch it's likely to land on that square and the torch will continue to be lit. Oh, interesting. I like that. And another very simple one is a trick 10-foot pole because it's really two 5-foot poles that you can screw together or otherwise connect together. And so you can carry the 5-foot poles without too much trouble, but when you need a 10-foot pole, you've got it. Carrying a 10-foot pole, that's difficult. Well, some groups, they, they want to bring pikes into the dungeon. I'm like, no. Bring a pike into the <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not going to work very well. Can't bring a pike into the dungeon. That's not going to work at all. Putting colored dust or flour in a packet or a, a small pottery sphere and then being able to throw that. The enemy's not going to know what that is. And so it can put them off. And, of course, the lower level you are, the more important this stuff is because you've got less capability to defend yourself. And the GM, way. and, yeah, the especially in the old school rules, it talks about dropping treasure and dropping food when you're being pursued. And cal all this thing, caltrips cal is another one. Yeah. All that yeah. should be allowed, and the GM should reward players. They shouldn't have, a, the monsters shouldn't have omniscience and go, oh, I know this is right. pink dust. I, you know, they, should, they should be weary. Here's another one. A dead rat. Wrap it up in oil skin if necessary. 
You can throw that as food for somebody. You can have it test things that you think might be trapped. And you can probably get dead rats fairly easily. Right. Now, when you're 10th level, you might not bother with the dead rat. But when you're low level and you can get snuffed out in an instant, then the dead rat can be useful. And they're not that heavy. I mean, right. I've had caught rats and rats and traps, and they're bigger than mice, but they're not that big. Of course, you can take a mouse. Uh, blindfold and a gag. Take a blindfold and a gag. You know, you might find a use for it. Light bombs, where you cast a, a continual light on something and then surround it with something. Many GMs will figure that makes it dark. Well, if that's something you're surrounded with is like pottery, and you throw it, boom, suddenly there's a light. Right. That's going to startle a lot of people. It's going to help you out. You know, there's bunches of things like that that you can do. And there, a lot of them are online. A lot of them is just, you know, again, actively thinking about the game as opposed to yes. being presented it's, it's, with these are the standard items. This is all you can use them for. Remember, in the end, RPGs are like fantasy novels. The fantasy novel, usually, the protagonists are extremely lucky. Otherwise, they just wouldn't manage. It's not always true, but it's often true. And if you work on your GM, the GM should recognize that you're going to be extremely lucky. But the luckiness you want is not just rolling lucky. It's using items like I've just talked about and tricks, stratagems, to succeed where the enemy just doesn't figure it out. Because if the enemy is really, really smart, you're dead. So look at it that way and make sure your GM looks at it that way and you'll be a lot better off. Well, my axiom, I mean, that supports exactly what you're saying is every player character death is the GM's fault. I don't mean it in a, that it's their fault, but... The GM can kill the whole party. The GM can, is the one who allows a player to die. I mean, you can, they can always prevent player death if they choose to. Yes. And um, the question is, when does the GM allow a player to die as opposed to being captured as opposed to, or, or the party to be killed? And typically, it's when they have felt like they gave the party enough warning and they didn't follow through and they are going to allow the consequences of their actions. And so your point is, if you do these things, you, re you reduce the amount of times where the GM is going to say, this is the natural consequence of your actions, and thus you're getting it. First, by playing smart, using a, these tactics, and then ultimately by demonstrating, hey, I'm doing, a, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I accept whether it may be bad luck, but in, even in the bad luck, it's in, it's in the group's best interest that not the worst outcome. Um, is, is kind of, that's how you win, as like you were talking about. If, I was just kind of summarizing that. If, if, if I miss something, please fill in that. And, and, of course, if you get young people, it's the age of instant gratification, and they don't, they're not keen on this kind of thing. And it depends on the age of the people you play with, and there are always lots of exceptions to anything you say about generations. And sometimes you just might have to a person to change his behavior or her behavior or don't play with them anymore. Especially with the thing of online. There's so many groups now 
if you want a certain style of play, you should be able to play it. You shouldn't be, you know, back when we were kids, when I played when I was kids, you played with your local group, that's who you had. You, you didn't have much of a choice. If, if Bob or Sue was a jerk or whatever, didn't want to play that way, you, you were kind of, it was either that or don't play. Mm -hmm. But if you live in a big metropolitan area like Orlando, right. there's, there's, that's right. you know, sometimes you have to recruit players. And it can be as simple as going to a game shop or putting up a notice at a game shop. There's uh, online there's, versions, there's meet up. Of, yeah, there's yeah, ways there's to do it. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I do believe I'm pretty much covered everything. Well, Lou, thank you for your time today. If people want to find you on the Internet, you are, uh, you are, well, you are versed in the Internet. as Pulsefer.net like or pulsefergames.com, and that lists all the other places. I am on Twitter fairly frequently. And you use YouTube as well. You're 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 missing. Yeah, I have a channel. YouTube. I have a game design channel on YouTube. I have the uh, Worlds of Design column on enworld.org. So that's where a lot of the, my new stuff comes out of those. Keep saying I have books I need to finish doing, and I don't, which at my age is kind of dangerous. But <laughs> I am the emperor of procrastination. Ah. Well, that, you, you, have, you have a lot of company there. Well, Lou, thank you for coming today. And thank you for inviting me. And uh, for Grog Talk, I'm James, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care.